are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Colorado Leaders Kick Off Pivotal Child Abuse Prevention Month by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading City Leaders Call Polis's Sweeping Land Use Bill Fundamentally Flawed by Nathaniel Minor. And Sonora Cinemas is taking over the old Elvis Cinemas Arvada location to show films for Spanish and English speakers by Isaac Vargas. From Westward, I'll be reading, Did you know Denver tows and moves cars during street sweeping season for free by Benjamin Neufeld? And 10 Things Tina Peters Can Do for Community Service by Teague Bolin. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Colorado Leaders Kick Off Pivotal Child Abuse Prevention Month by Robert Davis. Colorado leaders gathered at the state capitol on April 3rd to raise awareness about child abuse prevention. The event was attended by officials from the Colorado Department of Human Services and local nonprofits such as the Heart and Hand Center of Denver and Illuminate Colorado. I don't know what I would have done without my community and the services I needed to help raise my two children, said Mina Castillo-Cohen, the director of the Office of Children, Youth, and Family in the Department of Human Services. Data from the Department of Human Services shows that the number of sustained cases of child abuse in Colorado has remained relatively flat since 2020, but the number of calls to Colorado's Child Abuse and Neglect Hotline, 844-CO-4-KIDS, has increased about, by about 8% to more than 209,500 over the same period. State lawmakers have worked to address issues in Colorado's child welfare, welfare system in recent years after a 2014 audit found that DHS lacks processes to ensure its programs are meeting their intent. For example, the audit found that more than half of child safety assessments had incorrect information about families and their histories. Another one-third of cases reviewed by the Child Fatality Review Team did not include recommendations to improve screenings or assessments, according to the audit. For his part, Governor Jared Polis has signed bills to allow victims to file civil lawsuits against their abusers, extended the statute of limitations to bring child abuse cases, expanded the number of people who are required to report child abuse, and created child abuse prevention training programs for early childhood education providers. Colorado has numerous community support organizations that have programs to help parents like Lupita Cardosa, who lives in Lafayette, raise their children. Cardosa enrolled at the Sister Carmen Community Center about 12 years ago while she and her children were fleeing from domestic violence. She said the center offered her group support parenting classes, and computer classes, which helped her find stability in her personal life. Today, Cardosa is a support group leader at the Sister Carmen Center, which allows her to give back to the community that helped her. Every parent needs a little help and support, Cardosa said. 
Research has shown that growing up in unstable housing situations can also magnify the impact of adverse childhood experiences and increase the likelihood that a child could experience homelessness at some point in their life, according to a 2019 paper by the National Health Care for the Homeless Council, a national nonprofit. Moving forward, new state programs could help reduce instances of child abuse in Colorado. One example is the state's universal pre-K program that aims to expand enrollment in early childhood education. CDHS is also launching the Colorado Implementation Science Unit to better evaluate the state's child welfare programs and improve them for the future. These programs are critical to setting Colorado's kids on a path towards well-being, says Mary Alice Cohen, Deputy Director for Colorado's Department of Early Childhood. The next two articles are from Denverite. City leaders call Polis's sweeping land use bill fundamentally flawed by Nathaniel Minor. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock announced on Wednesday the city's opposition to a sweeping and controversial state bill that would force many local governments to allow denser housing. The bill, SB 23213, aims to lower housing costs by allowing more units to be built across the state. It has drawn the scorn of many local governments, whose leaders see it as a power grab by state authorities. SB 23213 is a laudable but fundamentally flawed top-down approach, and Denver is opposed to the bill as currently drafted, Hancock and City Council President Jamie Torres wrote in a statement. Leaders of many other local governments, as well as the Colorado Municipal League and the Metro Mayor's Caucus, also oppose the bill. Denver's opposition is particularly notable because it's the state's largest city, and some parts of it have rapidly densified over the last few decades. Denver has implemented some of the policies contained within the state bill, Hancock and Torres wrote, including allowing more density near public transit stations and allowing accessory dwelling units in certain areas. But they warned of the one-size-fits-all approach that strips away local control in the state bill. We have serious concerns about the attempt to preempt local land use control, the unintended but very real consequences of broadly upzoning when it comes to displacement and gentrification, lack of true affordability requirements in the bill, and the potential to undercut extensive community work to develop bold but appropriate plans and zoning for our residents, they wrote. The statement is in line with a previous comment. Before the bill was introduced, Hancock said Denver will never, ever surrender local control to anyone. City Council has not yet taken a formal vote codifying its position, but the vast majority of council members are in agreement with the Hancock and Torres statement, said City Council spokesman Robert Austin. Councilwoman Amanda Sandoval, for example, sent her constituents a letter this week saying she appreciates some parts of the bill, but she also calls it an overreach of state powers that would invalidate local planning efforts and increase displacement. But hold on, doesn't Hancock have one foot out the door? Does his opposition matter? While yes, it's true that Hancock will leave office this coming June, the state bill will either become law or die before then. The legislature must adjourn by mid-May. Were the bill to pass, it would fall to Hancock's successor and the next city council to decide how to meet its requirements. 
That will either be Mike Johnston or Kelly Burrow, depending on the result of the June 6th runoff election. In a statement, Burrow said, It's imperative that we find the best solution that fits Denver's needs. In Denver, land use is primarily within the purview of the city council, and as mayor, I would not take a position without consulting them first, she added. The Johnston campaign has not replied to a request for comment on the bill. On the topic of housing more generally, he told the Denver Post in March that we know we need to add more housing supply to make Denver affordable. But, he added, we also know we want to preserve the unique identity of each of our neighborhoods by not erecting skyscrapers in the middle of residential neighborhoods. However, in many neighborhoods, it is effective and consistent with the architecture and planning to add gentle density in the midst of single-family neighborhoods. Johnston has also been endorsed by pro-development YIMBY Denver. Sonora Cinemas is taking over the old Elvis Cinemas Arvada location to show films for Spanish and English speakers by Isaac Vargas. Sonora Cinemas, the multilingual format movie theater, is reopening after being closed since March 2020, and it's taking over the old Elvis Cinemas location in Arvada at 5157 West 64th Avenue. Sonora was originally located at Aurora Plaza on Peoria Street and East 6th Avenue. It was a popular spot for the Latinx community with its offerings of blockbuster movies in Spanish or with Spanish subtitles and its assortment of Mexican botanas snacks. The operation will replace Elvis Cinema's shuttered Arvada location, the Metro favorite family-owned theater chain that closed its doors in March after 23 years of business. The key metric for us is that we are a community operation, said Sonora Cinema's film buyer and corporate general manager, Louis Sullivan. It's about finding something embedded in the community. Sonora Cinema's Aurora location closed at the start of the pandemic. In a March 2020 Spanish-language Facebook post, Sonora told its followers that in order to help reduce the spread of COVID-19 in our community and our employees, it was closing its doors as other movie theaters around the country were. At that time, Sullivan says that they were been looking for an older format cinema that reflected the mission of Sonora. The post was met with several comments lamenting the closure. But now, news of its return has been met with excitement from area residents, many of whom expressed excitement and happiness at the prospect of being able to watch new movies in Spanish again. A lot of retail today is built in power centers, specifically off highways with easy access to and from exits. Any cinema that we've opened has been an older format cinema. Finding some of those can be rather difficult. The real estate is usually valuable. The nature of the family-owned Elvis location, the demographics of Arvada, and the timing felt right for Sonora to reopen this year, Sullivan said. We're shooting for late April, Sullivan said about a potential opening date. It's mostly cosmetic. We're really conscious about being reflective of the community that supported the Elvis cinema. We want to make sure that it is inclusive to the local folks who have been supporting that for 20-plus years as well. The Aurora location began as Cinema Latino, showing Spanish audible films that was a fan favorite for the Latinx community, but the company is hoping to expand its market reach. There is an opportunity to not just niche the Spanish language. That's what that growth for Sonora Cinemas reflects and represents. 
It's more based on multilingual, multi-generational experiences than just one Spanish language approach, Sullivan said. It will probably be close to a 50-50 between audible English and audible Spanish films. English language audible films will have Spanish subtitles. Spanish language audible films will be shown when they're made available from the studios in a dual format multilingual Spanish or English with opposite subtitles. That's what we've learned over the last 20 years, Sullivan said. We need to grow with our customer and the market. When asked about plans for their menu, which was previously known for Mexican candy, elote, and other popular botanas, Sullivan says that the new location gives them an opportunity to offer an expanded food concessions menu. We will overlay and integrate the Hispanic food offerings that we had in the Aurora location, as well as try to expand it with a little more general market offerings, Sullivan said. The following articles are from Westward. Did you know Denver tows and moves cars during street sweeping season for free by Benjamin Neufeld? Earlier this month, 23-year-old Griffin Fulton walked out of his friend's home in Capitol Hill and saw a tow truck brigade, about eight strong, making a move on his Subaru Outback and other cars in the area. It was the first week of street sweeping in Denver, and Fulton had driven in from out of town to visit his pal. Being on a road trip, nearly all of his stuff was still inside his car, meaning a tow could be devastating. In a panic, he rushed out the door. Although Fulton was technically parked in a street-sweeping zone in the 600 block of 12th Avenue, he says that the only street-sweeping signs he saw were placed down the street, on the other side of an alleyway. With that alley separating his parking spot from the no-parking first Friday April through November signs, the out-of-state visitor figured he was in the clear. As evidenced by the tow trucks, Fulton was not in the clear. Determined to get in and drive off, the young man quickly darted over to his outback but was spotted by one of the truck drivers who came over and questioned him about his license plate number. For the ticket? Fulton asked. No, I'm going to mark it down as a tow, the driver responded. To Fulton, what could have been a bothersome $120 fine and ill-fated impound situation actually ended up being a small blessing in disguise. With Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure telling Westward that the city was towing and moving cars that day so it could effectively sweep. But there's a catch. We move the cars to a spot nearby and then move the cars back, said spokesperson Nancy Kuhn. It's a scene straight out of Dude, Where's My Car? with residents often coming outside and finding their vehicles in completely different spots than where they left them. Once a year, we post additional no-parking signs in an area generally bounded by 11th Avenue to Colfax and Logan to Ogden and move cars that remain parked on the street, Kuhn explains. It is an area of town that is very heavily parked and difficult to sweep to the extent we like to throughout the sweeping season, so we make this extra effort in this specific area of town once a year to get a clean sweep. According to the community-based parking app Spot Angels, Denver is one of the few municipalities in the U.S. that doesn't automatically impound towed vehicles. The city is instead known to relocate cars to nearby locations where they can legally sit, the site says. If your vehicle's been towed, contact the Denver Police Non-Emergency Line to locate it, 720-913-2000, says Spot Angels. 
When you get the recorded message, hit zero for the operator. They will look up your vehicle's location. While Spot Angels claims the city charges $100 to relocate a person's car, Kuhn tells Westward that they were moving vehicles free of charge last week, but they still gave out $50 street sweeping citations. What was happening in that location last week is a very specific effort that has happened for probably close to 20 years now and which started at the request of the community, Kuhn says. For this effort, we issued $50 street sweeping citation to cars that remain parked on the street, no additional fine for the tow. In contrast, it would cost a vehicle owner $120 and $20 per day for storage to retrieve their impounded car according to the Sheriff's Department. Coloradans have had a rocky history with tow truck companies in the past. Wyatt's Towing, which has a 1.5 star rating on Google, and other tow companies throughout the state have been called out for predatory schemes involving taking advantage of formerly loose protections for vehicle owners to make money, according to a blog post from the Community Economic Defense Defense Project. The 2022 blog post says that a towed vehicle could often result in over $600 in fines for the vehicle's owner. Issues with towing got so bad that the state passed House Bill 22-13-14 in August last year. Among other protections, it requires companies to provide 24 hours notice to a vehicle owner before a tow and allows owners to recover their vehicle without a payment, as long as they sign a form acknowledging their debt to the tow company. As for the towing activity in Capitol Hill last week, Kuhn says, I think the effort is designed in a way that serves the neighborhood well. We're making a concerted effort to clean the streets in a particular area where on-street parking is heavily utilized while remaining customer-friendly. 10 Things Tina Peters Can Do for Community Service by Teague Bolin Tina Peters has some work to do, specifically community service. That was only part of the sentence handed down to the former Mesa County clerk and unfathomably benighted election denier, who was found guilty in early March of misdemeanor obstruction of a government operation. In addition to 120 hours of community service, she was also ordered to serve four months of home detention with an ankle monitor and pay a $750 fine. Not that she'll be complying anytime soon. After all, Peters is nothing if not accustomed to the denial of reality. This time, she's supported by her attorney, Harvey Steinberg, who persuaded the judge to stay the sentence after handing it down, pending the filing of an appeal. Not to mention other pending charges regarding tampering with election equipment. In this case, the judgment stems from Peters' arrest on February of 2022 at a Grand Junction bagel shop after she scuffled with Colorado investigators attempting to execute a search warrant to seize an iPad she was carrying. According to the affidavit, Peters refused to cooperate, and when officers tried to move her out of their way, she actively resisted. A jury acquitted her of of obstructing a police officer, but found her guilty on the lesser charge. So now it's the orange jumpsuit inside of the road for Colorado's most infamous election denier. Or is it? Fortunately for Peters, picking up trash on a random highway isn't the only community service she can provide. Here are some real-life, no-kidding possibilities for Peters to help wipe the red from her ledger. American Red Cross Mile High 
There are lots of ways Tina Peters could help serve the public through the American Red Cross. And after failing to serve the public good in the position in which she was elected, it seems appropriate. One of the biggest needs the Red Cross has is its disaster relief action team, which responds quickly to the needs of families displaced by emergent situations. With the fire season coming up fast, Tina, you'll unfortunately be needed, and soon. Might be time to help rectify disasters instead of causing them, yeah? ARC Thrift Stores ARC bills itself as one of Colorado's largest employers of people with Down syndrome, autism, cerebral palsy, and many other intellectual and developmental disabilities. And the nonprofit does it by taking in all the clothes, shoes, books, toys, kitchen items, furniture, decor, electronics, and household items from the garages, basements, crawl spaces, and storage units of Coloradans who've had enough of their stuff. Tina, you'd do a great job sorting through the clothing that gets dropped off, separating the sellable from the too far gone. After all, you've had a lot of experience with the airing of dirty laundry. Colorado Talking Book Library You've become adept at creating and standing by some pretty big works of fiction, telling them over and over again. But your audience has been dwindling since people have come to understand that most of what you say is horseshit. So here's a great opportunity for you to put that love for lying, um, storytelling, to use. Bonus. As long as you stick to the script, these folks will probably be the only audience left in Colorado that's not wholly sick of hearing what comes out of your mouth. Denver Rescue Mission. You claim to be religious, a believer, so you must see the relevance in volunteering for the Denver Rescue Mission. Heck, it's got that big neon cross on Park Avenue and Lawrence Street, and you're on record claiming your legal issues are a spiritual battle, and that the district attorney and judge are evil, very, very evil, and don't follow the same God that we do. But you don't believe that anymore, do you? After all, Jesus likes winners. Watch any sports tournament and you'll see. Only the winners thank Jesus. You'll need to get back in the good graces of the J-man. Maybe wash some feet like Christ did in John 13, 1-17. You might have lost your way in starting to think the My Pillow guy was your avenue to salvation. Food Bank of the Rockies Feeding the hungry might be the most basic way to serve the public. After everything you've done in the last few years the perversion of public service that you attempted to perpetrate, it might do your heart, clearly several sizes too small, some good to just give a needy kid a sandwich. Or, you know, stack cans in a warehouse. Goodwill of Colorado Goodwill is a lot like ARC. Similar setups, similar needs, but it knows what's up in terms of court-ordered community service. It has an application process specifically for that right on its website, and it's serious enough about it to reserve the right to turn you down. So best foot forward, fingers crossed you pass muster. Habitat for Humanity You might not ever be able to redeem yourself to a level where you can rightfully be compared to the good-hearted service of Jimmy Carter, but hey, Habitat isn't willing to just hand you a hammer and a hard hat anyway. All of the court-ordered community service happens at restore locations, which raise money for construction by selling donated building materials. But those 120 hours will fly by, and after that, maybe you will be inspired to learn some framing and roofing and basic electric. You know, useful stuff that people actually need. Project Angel Heart 
Another organization that has the court-ordered thing down cold, delivering meals and human contact to the isolated, ill, and infirm, there's not much that's more selfless, and selfless would be a good look for you, a nice change from would-be victim of an imagined anti-Trump police force, someone only seeking to stoke outrage for wrongly perceived persecution. Nobody likes that look, which is probably why you lost the Republican primary for Secretary of State by over 88,000 votes. Volunteers for Outdoors Colorado VOC is, to put it simply, all about environmental stewardship. You should look up that word, stewardship. It's what you were supposed to be doing for our democracy as clerk. But it's not too late to be a good steward in another way, by taking care of trails, planting trees, maintaining parks. You couldn't quite get the hang of serving the people of Colorado. Maybe start with squirrels and work your way up. We don't waste. Sure, the name of this organization refers to the wasting of food, salvaging still good produce and food from the restaurant industry and passing it along to feed the hungry. Good work, inspiring and important. But there's a double meaning here, one to which you might want to pay attention. Don't waste your opportunity to make right what you made wrong, to serve the public in real ways instead of the self-aggrandizing power grab stuff you've been doing. In short, don't consider your 120 hours of community service as a punishment. Consider it an invitation to start down that long and worthy path to absolution. Make your mea culpa mean something. Courting Disaster Dominion Voting Systems Suit Against Fox News Starts April 13th by Patricia Calhoun On November 12th, 2020, still President Donald Trump, refusing to surrender the White House, let loose with a barrage of tweets, including this. Report. Dominion deleted 2.7 million Trump votes nationwide. Data analysis finds 221,000 Pennsylvania votes switched from President Trump to Biden. 941,000 Trump votes deleted. States using Dominion voting systems switched 435,000 votes from Trump to Biden. In response, after a week of rumors labeling the company as the chief culprit in suspected voting fraud that had rigged the election for Joe Biden, Dominion Voting Systems, one of the most widely used voting equipment companies in the U.S., providing machines and software for more than 1,300 jurisdictions, posted a setting-the-record-straight statement on DominionVoting.com on November 13th. Dominion Voting Systems categorically denies false assertions about vote-switching issues with our voting systems, it read. According to a joint statement by the federal government agency that oversees U.S. election security, the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised. The government and private sector councils that support this mission called the 2020 election the most secure in American history. That was followed by a point-by-point -point debunking of numerous rumors, including the Pennsylvania vote deletion accusation, Sharpie pin conspiracies, and theories suggesting that Dominion has ownership relationships with members of the Pelosi family, the Feinstein family, the Clinton Global Initiative, and Venezuela. In reality, the website noted, 
Dominion is a nonpartisan U.S. company. Specifically, it's a nonpartisan U.S. company whose headquarters are in Denver, the capital city of a state where 62 out of 64 counties use Dominion voting system products, and a state that's repeatedly been cited for having the gold standard of fair and honest elections. Founded as a Canadian company in 2003, Dominion Voting Systems was incorporated in the United States in 2009 when it set up offices in Denver, ultimately landing in a space above the old spaghetti factory at 1801 Lawrence Street. Throw enough spaghetti at the wall, though, and ultimately something might stick in the mind of a Fox News viewer, even as the accusations started sliding into ignominy, like the hair dye on Rudy Giuliani's temple during the November 19, 2020 press conference, where he shared more accusations about Dominion's alleged vote rigging. Watching Fox News' coverage of that press conference, Rupert Murdoch, head of the empire that owns the network, sent an email to Fox News Chief Executive Suzanne Scott. Terrible stuff damaging everybody, I fear, probably hurting us, too. Maybe even $1.6 billion worth. That's how much Dominion is asking for in damages in the defamation suit it filed against Fox News Networks in March of 2021. It's also filed suit against Trump lawyers Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who joined the former New York City mayor at that disastrous November 19th press conference, and Mike MyPillow Lindell, as well as Newsmax and One America News Network, both conservative media outlets that had been cutting into Fox's audiences with their own batshit crazy accusations. Although defamation suits are notoriously difficult to pursue, with a high burden of proof, Dominion has survived every legal challenge so far. And now, jury selection in its case against Fox is scheduled to begin April 13th in Delaware. The trial is expected to last five weeks. In January, both parties filed motions for summary judgment with Judge Eric M. Davis. Fox asked that the suit be tossed. Dominion asked that the case be decided in its favor even before a trial. Dominion's 192-page filing was heavily redacted, but still full of evidence from depositions and discovery documents that Fox knew it was promoting falsehoods, including this exchange. Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Star host Tucker Carlson emailed Laura Ingraham on November 18, 2020. Ingraham responded, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. Carlson's reply, Our viewers are good people, and they believe it. After that candid conversation between two Fox stars, Carlson continued hosting Powell and other election deniers on his show, as did other hosts, sharing their debunked accusations with the good people who watched Fox. While the law shields journalists from liability if they unknowingly report on false statements, those protections are lost if they continue to promote statements that they know are false. And Dominion is out to prove that the country's most popular news network did just that in a rec reckless pursuit of ratings. Some Fox employees recognized the truth and stuck by it, according to the depositions. Anchor Dana Marino, Perino, who was raised in Denver, used some mile-high city smarts when she called allegations of voter fraud against Dominion total BS 
insane and nonsense. But more bombshells landed on Fox on February 27th. These lobbed by Rupert Murdoch himself. In his deposition, he acknowledged that several Fox hosts had endorsed baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump through voter fraud. I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight, Murdoch said. He also admitted that he could have made sure that Powell and Giuliani did not appear on Fox shows, but I didn't. Asked if he thought Trump was wrong to say that the election had been stolen, Murdoch replied, Yes. I mean, we thought everything was on the up and up. On February 28th, Trump tweeted his response to that. Why is Rupert Murdoch throwing his anchors under the table, which also happens to be killing his case and infuriating his viewers, who will again be leaving in droves? They already are. Fox offered its own response to that Murdoch deposition release. Dominion's lawsuit has always been more about what will generate headlines than what can withstand legal and factual scrutiny. You can expect plenty of headlines, as well as endless legal scrutiny as the trial proceeds, if it does. The Wall Street Journal just reported that Fox and former host Lou Dobbs settled a defamation lawsuit brought by Venezuelan businessman Mahed Khalil, who claimed he was falsely accused of having helped Dominion and Smartmatic USA Corp., another voting machine company that's filed its own defamation suits, rigged the 2020 U.S. presidential election against Trump. But after two and a half years of threats and actual attacks that led Dominion to move its Denver office not once, but twice, in mid-November 2020, a crisis communicator asked us to remove our photo of the old spaghetti factory building from our Dominion coverage, but the damage had already gone far too deep, and instead the employees were removed. The company has nothing left to lose, and a lot to gain. While the judge did not grant Dominion's request for summary judgment after two days of hearings last month, Judge Davis did offer several other gifts. The evidence is crystal clear that none of the statements relating to Dominion about the 2020 election are true, he wrote in his 81-page decision, citing the assertions that the company was controlled by Venezuela and employed an algorithm to boost the Democratic vote count. Still, Davis said, there was some uncertainty about who knew what at the time that Fox News aired falsehoods and who authorized those broadcasts. The court does not weigh the evidence to determine who may have been responsible for publication and if such people acted with actual malice. These are genuine issues of material fact and therefore must be determined by a jury, he ruled. And that jury will be able to hear from Rupert Murdoch in person, the judge determined, along with such Fox stalwarts as Carlson, Ingraham, Sean Hannity, and Maria Bartiromo. Davis did throw Fox a bone, though because nearly all of the statements cited in the case were made before January 6th, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol would not be a part of the Dominion trial. By January 6, 2021, Dominion and its employees had already weathered almost two months of Fox-fueled fury from Stop the Steal election deniers, and it has not ended yet. What parties were thinking in January is not very relevant, if at all, to what happened in November and December, the judge said. Fox is not the cause of January 6th in its relation to Dominion. I do think that's a really big issue that has to be stayed away from, at this trial at least. 
but that can't be decided in the court of public opinion. Fox Idis drove his client to storm the Capitol, one attorney has charged. He believed what was being fed to him. Meet Levitt Pavilion's new executive director, Megan McNamara, by Justin Criado. For Megan McNamara, creating and presenting arts-based programming centered around live music is about more than just bringing in the hottest hit makers and packing a venue. Instead, she sees the stage as an opportunity to introduce more diverse talent to different audiences and ultimately build inclusive communities. McNamara's long-standing ethos aligns perfectly with that of Levitt Pavilion Denver, a nonprofit built around the idea that nothing brings people together better than music, which is why she was recently named the organization's new executive director after an international search led by Arts Consulting Group Incorporated. After an exhaustive search, we are thrilled to welcome Megan McNamara to the Levitt Pavilion Denver family. Her experience and leadership will be invaluable as we continue to bridge cultural gaps and erase divisions in our community through music, Levitt Pavilion Board Chair Maria Corral shared in an announcement highlighting the new hire, whose first official day was Monday, April 3rd. With more than 15 years of experience in arts management and nonprofit leadership, McNamara had most recently overseen programming, marketing, and partnerships for the Joan W. and Irving B. Harris Theater in Chicago. As Vice President of Programming and Audience, she curated programming for Harris Theater Presents, which brings innovative and boundary-pushing productions by world-renowned artists and emerging voices from around the globe to Chicago. While studying politics and social movement at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, McNamara began her career in the arts with an internship at Molo Songololo, a children's rights organization with arts-based programming in Cape Town, South Africa. At that point, I knew that this was a space that I wanted to work in and have a professional path where creativity and community building can really come together, she says. After returning stateside, she joined the team at Carolina Performing Arts before working in the Windy City. Her diverse arts and events background affords McNamara a unique understanding of audience relationships and thoughtful community engagement that's ideal for her new role in Denver, and she's happy to be here. As far as Denver goes, there are a couple of things that really drew me to the city. On a personal level, I enjoyed being here as a visitor over the years. It's a city that I knew would be great from a lifestyle perspective, McNamara says. In terms of the cultural sector, I think there's a pretty unique challenge being a not-for-profit music presenter and venue in a city that has such a rich music scene, and a very saturated one in some ways, but really carving out the unique space for Levitt and establishing and building on that institutional identity is something that I'm really looking forward to digging into. Located in Ruby Hill Park in southwest Denver, Levitt Pavilion hosts an annual free concert series as well as ticketed shows with local, regional, national, and international acts in a relaxed open lawn setting. The full summer season slate was announced on Tuesday, April 11th and begins Saturday, May 6th with Fishbone and Frontside 5. The wide variety of musicians and genres is just another reason McNamara is proud to be part of such a space. I'm excited that there are some bigger names like La Santa Cecilia, Saturday, May 13th, and Soccer Mommy, 
Thursday, June 22nd, because there's a great deal of visibility that comes with having those bigger acts and audiences discovering the venue that way, she says. Personally, I'm super excited for Sun Little, Friday, May 19th. I love R&B and soul, and I think he has such an incredible songwriting talent and a really distinctive voice. She adds that Levitt's festival formats and partnership-driven cultural programs also make for a positive guest experience. I love that format with multiple artists and multiple genres in some cases. I think it creates a really rich experience, whether people identify with the artists who are performing on that particular day, or perhaps they're discovering the layers of a culture through those programs, McNamara says. A fan of everything from hip-hop to freeform jazz, McNamara plans to catch a show at Red Rock soon, or at least whenever she's able to while helping to put on 50 free concerts and more throughout her first season with Levitt. She knows that building community through music takes dedication and consistency from everyone involved. Plus, she adds, it's important to do a lot of listening in order to learn from partners and patrons who create a welcoming and enriching experience for everyone who comes through the venue. I really think that some of those partnership-driven events are such a critical piece, not to just make sure that there's a really diverse range of artists on stage, she continues. It establishes credibility for the organization because those partners have relationships in their own respective communities. And by saying that we want to partner with this venue and inviting people in it creates a credibility and a trust that you can't build overnight. It's work that requires constant investigation and nurturing relationships and challenging ourselves to think about who might be missing or what we can do better. I love that it's foundational to the Levitt mission and something that we'll continue to build on. For more information, visit levittdenver.org. Dillard evokes maternal love on Garden Mother Release by Juliana Eau Dylan Ray, who performs and creates under the name Dillard, distinctively remembers the event that started his musical journey, a trip with his aunt and uncle to see the band America. The group's funky folk song, A Horse With No Name, was his first glance at live music's dizzying, intoxicating energy. After witnessing America's performance, Ray delved into the musical world with a passionate curiosity, sampling genre after genre as he honed his musical taste. He listened to everything from hardcore and metal to techno, eventually discovering, and loving, the hypnotic thrum of dubstep. I was obsessed with sub-bass and the raw power of it, Ray says, reflecting on the dubstep warehouse parties he would attend. So that was honestly my introduction to getting into production. Ray discovered Ableton in 2008, and the rest, as he says, is history. The very definition of a DIY artist, he learned to use the music creation software through experimentation, fiddling with the setups of friends who were into production and learning the ins and outs of the program through trial and error. Being able to express myself through a program that I didn't even know was possible. It was just life-changing for me, Ray says, explaining that he has always been obsessed with creation, but never found a medium that really resonated with him until learning Ableton. Despite his success, Ray remains humble, and a part of him is still adjusting to his new reality as an internationally known music producer. He has performed at multiple international festivals, including Portugal's massive Psytrance Fest boom in 2018. He has also toured Austria, Italy, Ibiza, Spain, and Lisbon, 
and experience, Ray says, was absolutely trippy. Very humbling, honestly, because they reached out to me for those bookings. And I was like, whoa, how do these people even know about me over here? Ray considers his work to be multi-genre and makes it clear that he doesn't like being pigeonholed. His melodic, bass-driven music varies from jazzy dubstep to organic bass music, and he lays the foundation for his tracks in the bass line, building the songs from the ground up. He also does sound design, trudging through the tedious work of separating and storing audio clips for the satisfaction of throwing sounds he enjoys into production tracks at a later time. I use my mouth for drums or just random things I can find, like egg shakers, or just anything really that's around. You can turn it into a sound and morph it into basically whatever you're thinking, Ray explains. As for his newest album, Garden Mother, which will be released via Gravitas Recordings on Friday, April 14th, Ray wants the music to emulate the feelings of comfort he's received from the maternal figures in his life, especially his mother, whose support means the world to him. It's really hard to explain, honestly, Ray says. I almost feel like a channel of some sort. The music kind of writes itself sometimes, and it's a really cool feeling, just being able to listen through a whole project and be like, I don't even remember writing this. A lot of the tracks on Garden Mother were also inspired by mushrooms and LSD, and, in a roundabout way, designed to help alleviate these, like, anxieties and stressful mentalities that are associated with tripping, Ray says. He notes that he no longer partakes in any psychedelics, but often reminisces about his past experiences while creating music. The tracks on Garden Mother weren't created all at once. In fact, the album is a bit like a puzzle, formed when Ray created songs he felt fit together. It's kind of esoteric, but I would like the listener to create their own story, he says. The music doesn't have a specific point, but he hopes that Garden Mother will touch each person in a unique, intimate way. Reflecting back on his early music career and his 16-year-old self, who was just beginning to dip his toes into the world of music production, Ray emphasizes the importance of genuine love in his music. I do genuinely believe that everything happens for a reason, he says. We do have free will, but at the same time, love is a real thing, and you can't fake love. So if you pour your heart and soul into what you're doing and love what you're doing, then it will show to other people. Garden Mother will drop on all streaming platforms on Friday, April 14th. Dillard plays Mishawaka Amphitheater, 13714 Poudre Canyon Road, Bellevue, at 8 p.m. Saturday, May 27th. Tickets are $30. Welcome, Viva Streets, Denver this summer. Adios, Labor Day Taste of Colorado, by Patricia Calhoun. Inspired by a major bash in Mexico City that spread to cities around the globe, the Downtown Denver Partnership is planning a summer of connection and celebration, according to DDP President and CEO Courtney Garrett. And the biggest celebration is Viva Streets, a free recurring event produced in cooperation with DRCOG in the city of Denver that will take over two major downtown streets on four upcoming Sundays, starting May 14th. At an announcement today, April 12th, in front of the Denver City and County Building, Garrett and other organizers described how people will be able to walk, bike, roll, scoot, or dance, Garrett's favorite, on Broadway from Alameda to downtown and Welton Street from 20th Street into Five Points, 
exploring and experiencing the city along the way. While there will be activation all along these car-free stretches with three activity hubs, the center of the action will be at Civic Center Park, expanding Taste of Colorado into four individual Sundays, Garrett says, with all the food and entertainment offerings of that longtime holiday party. Except, the Taste of Colorado will not be held on Labor Day weekend, the traditional time for the turkey leg-waving musical extravaganza. The Taste of Colorado got its start as the Festival of Mountain and Plain, founded in 1895 to help bring back a depressed Denver. It ran until 1902, then was resurrected in 1983 to help bring back a depressed Denver. The event was canceled because of COVID in 2020, moved to the 16th Street Mall in 2021, then moved back to Civic Center Park in 2022. And that's where you'll find it this year, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on June 4th, July 9th, and August 6th, in addition to May 14th, while Viva Streets will run those same days from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Amrita Rose is a life coach, and she wants you to burn your suit by Teague Bolin. Everyone gets into ruts. The same old, same old cycles of daily life catch us all from time to time. The key, according to life coach Amrita Rose, is feeling unstoppable. That's the core message of Rose's new self-help book, No Plaid Suits, How Not to Have a Boring, Normal Life. The book is the culmination of her time working as a life and career coach when she developed her program and website, An Unstoppable Life. She'll be reading from No Plaid Suits at Longmont Books on Friday, April 14th. The event, which includes a Q&A with the author, is free and open to the public. So how does someone become an advisor in living extraordinarily? I'm the product of college teachers who taught art, Rose says, drawing and painting. So I grew up as an art brat. That inspired her to follow a similar path as an adult getting an art degree, and eventually teaching. I got to a point where I was done with academia, Rose recalls. I'd moved on and didn't know where to go next. Finally, a friend of mine said that everything I'd been doing my whole life was teaching people how to see the world in a different way, literally and figuratively. Photography, drawing, painting, yoga, meditation, writing, whatever. She's the one that first said it. You should be a life coach. Rose's reply, what the hell's a life coach? Later that same week, she got an offer from an old friend to participate in a life coaching certification workshop. I went, thinking, well, clearly the universe is sending me a message here. I've always loved learning, so it'll at least be interesting, Rose remembers with a laugh. But I ended up loving it. But it's more than just the kismet of a friend's recommendation and a well-timed educational opportunity that propelled Rose toward writing No Plaid Suits. There was a wealth of real-world experiences underpinning it all. My first job was as an ancillary therapist at a mental institution, Rose recalls. I'm fascinated by mental health. That experience was something she would directly draw upon as a coach. Life and career coaching is essentially all about listening deeply to what someone is saying and how they're saying it, she says, and then asking questions that allow them to see things in a new way, from a different perspective. It's also about being an effective observer of behaviors that a person might not be able to see, she continues. 
We all have blind spots. We all have behaviors that we do over and over and we don't recognize we do them. We're human. But it's easier for someone on the outside to say, you know that thing you keep doing? You're doing it again. And then to ask how that's really affecting them. Rose says that people often ask her how life coaching differs from traditional therapy. The biggest difference, she says, is that if you go see a therapist, they'll spend a lot of time with you figuring out how you got to the now, all the backstory. It's very useful for certain things. Positive psychology coaching, which is what I do, starts with the now and asks, where do you want to be? The answer to that, according to Rose, is nothing more than systems analysis. What's getting in the way of you moving forward? What are the beliefs that you have? What are the actions you're taking or failing to take? How might you be talking yourself out of it? So I'm a systems analyst, always have been. No plaid suits might never have become a book, however, without Rose's decision to start writing her blog. She made a deal with herself that she'd write something new every day for three years, and sometimes she felt like she didn't have much to say. So when I got stuck for a topic, I'd ask the people around me what they wanted to know that they didn't know now, and I'd write about that. And the more I wrote, the more people began to ask when I was going to put all those blog posts in a book, Rose says. When she began her blog, she lived in Asheville, North Carolina. She moved to Colorado just before the pandemic, and like the rest of the world, suddenly had a lot of free time. I figured, well, this is a great time to write a book, she says. She pulled together the best of her writing from the blogs, and on the recommendation of some friends in a writing group, added memoir elements to prove her bona fides. And then I kept throwing things in, she admits. There's downloadable meditation. There's cheat sheets. There's all kinds of stuff. It was a lot of fun to write, and the perfect time to do it. But what's that title about? What does Rose have against plaid suits? It came from one of the original blog posts, one that I actually renamed for the book, she explains. It's a metaphor for the story we not only tell ourselves constantly, but that we live out there in the real world, the thing that we're showing to everyone we meet, even if we don't realize it, the thing defining and limiting us and clashing with everyone else's plaid suits. As for that old plaid suit, burn it, Rose advises. She'll give you the lighter. Amrita Rose will read from and discuss her book at Longmont Books, 624 Main Street, Longmont, 7 p.m. Friday, April 14th. The event is free. Piccolo, a South Denver staple for 50 years, will close April 30th by Molly Martin. The Canino family has been a part of Denver's dining scene for decades. Patriarch Clyde Canino Sr., who passed away last year, founded the family business more than 50 years ago. At one point, it included three locations of the Piccolo restaurant, as well as Tico's Mexican, which Clyde's son, Marty, continues to run as a food manufacturing commissary. But on April 30th, the last Piccolo at 3563 South Monaco Parkway will shutter after five decades. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.